how would you have responded if somebody stuck a camera in your face and said, what do you believe about the Bible? We are talking about this idea today, this, this question about whether the Bible is reliable. This isn't working. If you could try restarting it. Thanks. Um, talking about whether the Bible is reliable. Um, is the Bible something that we ought to pay attention to? Is the Bible something that uh, we ought to use as the basis for how we live our life? Now, um, this is going to be a little bit different message this morning. Uh, because normally what we do is we take a part of the Bible and we talk about it. We unpack it. That's what the sermon is. But this morning's sermon instead is going to be about the Bible itself. And I'm actually going to take you through four different things this morning. First of all, I want to talk about the external evidence. In other words, evidence from outside sources about the Bible that helps us have some understanding about how reliable the Bible is. Then I want to talk about some internal evidence because there's some stuff in the Bible itself that's really pretty remarkable when you think about it. And so we want to take a look at that internal evidence. Um, but then really... The most important thing is, is the Bible relevant? Because it's an old book, a couple thousand years old. It, it, does it still have something to say to modern life today? I mean, when the Bible was written, there weren't computers, there weren't cell phones, there, there weren't cars, you know, none of that stuff. So it, does the Bible really have something relevant to say to us in our modern times today? But then finally, I think maybe most importantly, we need to remind ourselves what the purpose of the Bible is. Because if you've got that wrong, none of the rest of this really makes sense at all. So let's, let's dive in. But first, before we do, let's remind ourselves what the Bible actually is. First of all, it's not a book. You know that, right? It's actually a collection of books. 66 of them, uh, to be accurate. 66 different books written over a period of over 1,600 years from 1500 B.C. all the way to about 100 A.D. Over 40 different authors, some of them we know, some of them we don't know, wrote different parts of the Bible. And written in three different languages. By the way, do you know what those languages are? I heard Hebrew. I heard Greek. Aramaic. Very good. Wow, you guys are pretty sharp. Okay, yeah. Three different languages that the Bible is written in. By the way, all three ancient languages, right? Which provides challenges enough in itself. So that's what the Bible is. Now we divide the Bible into two parts. We have the 39 books of the Old Testament. And when you look at them, these are the sacred Jewish scriptures. So they are shared between Christians and Jews. There in the Old Testament, we find what's called the Law of Moses. We find the history of the Jewish people. And then we find these prophetic books that foretold this coming Messiah. And in fact, those promises of the Messiah go through all the law of Moses and the history of the Jewish people as well. We also have the New Testament, 27 books, um, starting with the, what we call the Gospels, which are the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. The theme of the New Testament is this idea of a coming kingdom, a kingdom that Jesus brings when he comes, and that kingdom that continues through us and eventually when Jesus comes again. And then there's these letters in the New Testament written by people like Paul and John and James, all helping us understand how we are to now live as we live out the gospel. That's what the Bible is. 
But now let's, let's take a look at, first of all, some external evidence about the Bible. Now, I found this chart this week, and this chart talks about some of the um, ancient writings, and it kind of compares uh, the evidence about them, or the provenance, we would say, maybe, of these ancient writings. Notice that you've got things like stuff that was written by people like Tacitus, the Roman historian, or Aristotle. How many of you have heard of Aristotle? Yeah, I mean, very famous, right? Famous author, wrote lots of things. Take a look at Aristotle, for example. He wrote his writings between 384 and 322 B.C., but the earliest copy we have, in other words, we don't have any of those original copies of Aristotle's writing. The, the earliest copy we have is from 1100 A.D. So there's actually 1,400 years from when we know what Aristotle, that we know Aristotle wrote to where we actually have copies of what he wrote. So there's, there's 1,400 years where we don't have any copies of his writing. And, and, uh, um, and we only have 49 copies of what Aristotle wrote. Okay? Um, take a look, for example, at Homer. Now, generally speaking, other than the Bible, um, literary scholars will tell you that the writings of Homer are probably the best attested old manuscripts. Okay? So take a look at Homer. Uh, wrote in 900 B.C., and we actually have copies that go all the way back to 400 B.C., so we have copies that are 2,400 years old of the writings of Homer's Iliad, so there's only about 500 years between when he wrote and the oldest copies we have. We have 643 different ancient documents, and when you look at them, they are 95% accurate. In other words, about 5% of them, the words are different um, or there's some parts that are missing or things like that. But 95% of those manuscripts are accurate. You know, just kind of amazing when you think about it. I mean, think about that for a minute. Some guy named Homer wrote this Iliad uh, in 900 B.C., and we have copies that are 2,400 years old. We have, uh, we have hundreds of those copies, and they're 95% accurate. That's pretty amazing. But look at the New Testament. Written in the first century AD, AD, between 50 and 100 AD, we have copies that go all the way back to the second century. So we don't have the originals, but we have copies that were written, some of them, within 30 years of the originals. And we have 5,600 different manuscripts of the New Testament, and those manuscripts are 99.5% accurate. So when you take a look at those 5,600 copies we have, some of them going back almost 2,000 years, they are almost word for word, letter to letter, the same. Folks, when it comes to just simply looking at the number of manuscripts, the accuracy of those manuscripts, the age of those manuscripts, the time between when the originals were written and the copies that we have, no other historical document comes close to the Bible. There's other external evidence, though, as well, not just for the New Testament, but for the Old Testament. Here, here's, here's one that I think is kind of amazing. So while we have very old copies of the New Testament, we didn't have that many old copies of the Old Testament until recently. So let's take the book of Isaiah, for example. Up until the 1940s, the oldest copy of the book of Isaiah we had was from about 1,000 um, A.D., so maybe 2,000 years after it was written. Then they found these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of them? And in the pile of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in these, these piles of old scrolls, they found an Isaiah scroll, perfectly preserved. Uh, almost, I mean, almost every word perfectly preserved. A thousand years or older 
than the oldest copy of Isaiah we had ever had before that. And guess what? Letter for letter, the same. So you've got, uh, all of a sudden, you've got this copy of Isaiah from, you know, the 10th century or 11th century. Now you've got one from the 1st century, and they're almost identical. Again, just amazing proof that the, the documents that we have in the Bible are amazingly accurate. Now here's the other cool thing, and I've got to be a little careful here uh, because this really gets me excited. I could talk about this stuff all day. In fact, I told the 8 o'clock folks, or 8.30 folks this morning, I could preach for three hours on this. And a couple of them said, go ahead. I'm like, all right, cool, let's go. No, but I didn't do that. But but i got to be a little careful. But the the amazing fact is the more archaeology we do, the more accurate the Bible becomes. Let me give you a couple examples of that. There's this guy named Pontius Pilate. Now, you may remember him from the story of the Gospels, where Jesus is arrested, he's put on trial. Remember, Pontius Pilate is the Roman, what's called procurator or governor of Judea. And Pilate is the one who eventually sentences Jesus to death on the cross. Pilate is the one uh, that, the, that the Jewish authorities bring Jesus to for trial. So Pilate, Pilate pray, plays a very prominent role there in the story of Jesus. But there's only one problem. When you look at the Roman records from the day, there's no listing of a guy named Pontius Pilate as governor there in Judea. And scholars have always pointed to that as a problem. Now for biblical scholars, they say, well, it's, that's not too big a problem. Because we do know that one of the things that the Roman Caesars would do is, if you got into an argument with Caesar, in in other words, if you were on the outs with Caesar, not only would he throw you in prison, but they would go and they would take your name out of all the the Roman records. Because they didn't want your history, you know, they were trying to wipe you out of the Roman history. So biblical scholars have always said, well, that's what's going on with Pilate. He obviously had problems with Caesar. We know from the gospel accounts that his relationship with Caesar was tenuous at the time. So he must have just gotten himself in trouble and gotten his name out of the records. But it was still kind of a sore spot. Until in the 1960s, they were doing an excavation in an area called Caesarea Maritima, and they found a stone that had been reused for construction, and it's the one on the left there, and inscribed on that stone is the name of Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea. So then they found a stone that that just verified what the Bible said. And I don't know if you missed this or not around Christmas time, but there was another big story in the news that just recently they discovered that thing on the right there. That's actually Pontius Pilate's signet ring. Now they're not sure whether Pilate actually wore that ring or whether one of his scribes, one of his scholars wore that ring to use to seal documents on his behalf. But right there on the ring, it talks about Pilate, who was the procurator there in Judea. So archaeology backs up the claims of Scripture. Let me give you one more example of that. There's this city in the Old Testament and the New Testament called Jericho. Now, some of you may remember from your Sunday school days, you know, that story about Joshua marching around the city of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Well, in the 1960s, a woman named Catherine Kenyon decided that she was going to excavate ancient Jericho and prove that that never happened. She was going to excavate and show that there was no sign that the walls had a catastrophic failure around uh, Jericho. But guess what she found? The exact opposite. She found actually that there was a catastrophic failure of the walls. The walls did come tumbling down. And she found out something really interesting too. If you remember the Old Testament story, there's this woman named Rahab. And, and she lived in the city wall near the north end of Jericho. 
and she helped the uh, Israeli spies that were there. And in fact, God promised her and her family that when the walls came tumbling down of Jericho, she and her family would be spared. Guess what Catherine Kenyon found? There was one little area in the north of Jericho where the walls didn't come tumbling down, where Rahab lived. Amazing, archaeology backs up the biblical account. Here's just one more cool thing about Jericho. Another thing scribes and, and scholars had often pointed to is that in Mark and Luke's, I mean in Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus heals a man born blind on his way into Jericho. But in Luke's gospel, it says he's leaving Jericho. Well, guess what else Catherine Kenyon found? There were two Jerichos in Jesus' day. There was ancient Jericho that was still in ruins that Matthew and Mark would have talked to a Jewish audience about. And there was modern Jericho, which Luke would have written to his Gentile audience about. So one says Jesus is going out of Jericho, and they were right. And the other says Jer Jesus is going into Jericho. They were right too. Again, archaeology backs up the biblical account. So there's all this external evidence that would help us see that not only is the Bible an amazingly historically accurate book, but archaeology backs up the stories in the Bible. But what about inside the Bible itself? Well, there's some internal evidence we want to make sure we pay attention to. First of all, and the number varies depending on which theologian you're talking to, but there are literally hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that we know from history came true. For example, the Old Testament talks in a number of places how the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and then not rebuilt. And guess what? That actually happened. In 70 AD, the Roman Emperor Titus destroyed the temple and it has not been rebuilt to this day, just like the Old Testament prophecy said. A lot of those prophecies have to do with the person of Jesus himself. And by the way, sometimes I, someone I'll be talking about this with them, they'll say, well, Jesus just knew those prophecies, so he lived his life in, his, in a way that would fulfill the prophecies. And my answer to that is, oh, so Jesus decided to be born in Bethlehem, huh? How did he pull that off, right? Because that's one of the prophecies from the Old Testament, that Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And we know that's exactly what ended up happening. That's a historical fact. So there's all these prophetic statements in the Bible itself that end up coming true, that give this internal consistency uh, to Scripture. Here's, a, here's another one. There's a consistency of the message throughout the Bible. Remember, again, it was written over 1,600 years by over 40 different authors, and yet there are some things that are amazingly consistent, author to author to author. Things like this, this doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet one God, that theme is found throughout all of scripture. There's just a, a number of things where it'd be hard to imagine that, that um, a group of individuals over 1,600 years could have had that much consistency of message throughout scripture. And then there's this interesting thing that's called inconsistent testimony in scripture. Um, I first read about this when a guy by the name of Lee Strobel, who was an investigative journalist for the Tribune, uh, who's an atheist, by the way, and he set out to investigate the claims about Jesus in the Bible, and he did that in order to prove, by the way, that the Bible was inaccurate, and it ended up proving the exact opposite to him. And one of the arguments that was compelling for him is, as an investigative reporter, he had interviewed a lot of witnesses over the years, and he, he said he found witnesses would fall into one of three categories— Either, first of all, he talked to the witnesses, and they all told the exact same story. 
So whenever he heard that, he was very suspicious. Because if you talk to four or five different people, and they all have almost word for word the exact same story, he's like, it sounded like they had been coached. Someone had told them exactly what to say. He said, or he talked to witnesses, and, and their, their accounts were so different that you couldn't even believe they were talking about the same thing. And, and in that case, he would just dismiss it. He'd say, obviously, something's wrong here. He said, but, but what he found was, in most cases where there was something true that had happened, you'd talk to the witnesses, and their stories would be different, but they wouldn't be so different. They'd be different just enough that it had a ring of truth to it, and he called that inconsistent testimony. He said, when he read the Gospels, that's what it was. As he read through the Gospel testimonies about Jesus, what he found was they weren't identical. You know, they weren't so identical that it seemed like the gospel writers had been coached or that they had all sat down and made up a story together that they were going to keep straight. But by the same token, they weren't so far apart that it wasn't describing something true that had happened. He said as he read through the gospels, they just had this, this, this sound of truth to them that he had learned to pick up on by interviewing witnesses over all those years. And finally, there's some pretty inconvenient facts in the Bible. In other words, they're facts that if you were going to make up the story, you never would have made up. For example, who were the first witnesses to the birth of Jesus? Do you remember? Shepherds. The last people in the world you would have wanted to be witnesses if you were trying to make the case that Jesus was who he said he was. Or who were the first witnesses to the resurrection? The women. Again, women in Jesus' day were not seen as reliable witnesses. If you really wanted to, to, to make up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, the last people that you would have had as the first witnesses to Jesus' re resurrection would have been the women disciples. And yet that's exactly what the story says. In other words, there are, these, there are these inconvenient facts, facts that you almost wish they were different, but they're not. And that lends truth and credibility to the biblical accounts. You know, Scripture itself makes a claim about itself. This is in 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is inspired by God, Paul writes, and is useful for teaching, for showing people what is wrong in their lives, for correcting faults, and for teaching how to live right. Using the Scriptures, the person who serves God will be capable having all that is needed to do every good work. In other words, Scripture claims that not only is it inspired by God, literally the word there means breathed out. In other words, we believe that the scripture is the writing of human beings, yet guided by God's spirit. But then it says, not only is it guided by God's spirit, but for a purpose, so that we might know the right way to live. And if that's true, then if you follow what the Bible says, you should see that your life goes better than if you don't, right? Right? Did you ever hear of this guy, A.J. Jacobs? A.J. Jacobs is an author. Um, he writes primarily for Esquire magazine, and he's famous for doing some pretty crazy things and then writing about them. For example, he wrote this series of articles called My Outsourced Life. And what that was is he actually hired, um, outsourced his life. He hired people in India to live his life for him for a month. And, and so they answered all his email. They answered all his phone calls. They even... Uh, through the internet read to his children before they went to bed. He basically hired a bunch of people in India to do everything for him for a month so he could just lay around and watch TV and read. And then he wrote about it, of course. Um, another thing he did is he spent a year reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z. 
That's all he did for a year is just read the encyclopedia, and then he wrote about that. Well, he got this idea that he was going to live the way the Bible said to live for a year. Now, he's not a believer, doesn't believe in God. And by the way, I would love to tell you that after reading the Bible and living it for a year, he became a believer. He didn't. He still thinks the idea of God is silly and doesn't believe a lot of what the Bible says. But, uh, but he decided he was going to try to live exactly the way the Bible says to live. And I don't mean just, you know, like love your neighbor and stuff like that or don't lie or don't kill. I mean like don't wear mixed clothing of mixed fibers and things like that. All the Old Testament laws. So he decided he was going to live that way for a year. So he ate paleo, you know, the whole routine, you know. And, uh, and here's what he discovered. He said it changed his life. Now, again, he didn't become a believer or anything like that. But he said living biblically, apart from having some silly things, like he was in a park one day and he was talking to some elderly guy and the guy found out what he was doing. He goes, well, doesn't the Bible say you're supposed to stone adulterers to death? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm an adulterer. He's like, all right, you want me to stone you to death? You know, so, but, uh, but, uh, but he said other than silly things like that, what he found is some of the things the Bible teaches were transformative for his life. For example, he says the Bible teaches, unlike what a lot of people believe, that, be, that thinking follows behavior, not the other way around. In other words, we often believe that if I'm going to do something, I have to believe in it first. Or if, if I'm going to act in a certain way, I have to believe that it's important for me to act that way first. But he says the Bible teaches the opposite, that sometimes we just, we act in a certain way obediently and our heart follows later. And he said he found that to be exactly true. For example, you know, the Bible says love your neighbor. Well, if you start treating your neighbor as if you love them, guess what? He found he actually started loving people that he wouldn't have loved any otherwise. He said he found that there's a brilliance in what the Bible teaches about human behavior and in our feelings and our emotions. He also said that he began to practice thankfulness because one of the things the Bible teaches is you're supposed to be thankful all the time. So he started being more thankful every day. He'd make a list of everything he was thankful for. And he, and he just kept, you know, he said, I was praying. I don't know who I was praying to, but I was just saying thank you. And he said, saying thank you, learning to be thankful, changed my life. And he, he said, still today, his life is different because he practices thankfulness every day and it's transformed his life. He talked about the Sabbath. This whole idea of taking one day of rest and knowing that you're not going to accomplish anything that day, and that's okay, because ultimately you're not in control of your life. Someone else is. He said that was an amazing thing for him, and it's still something that has changed his life. In other words, even though he didn't become a believer, he found that by following what the Bible taught, his life was dramatically different. It was better. Isn't that amazing? But let's not forget what the Bible's really all about. Because is that really why God gave us the Bible so that we could live our lives differently? Is that really the purpose of the Bible as kind of an instruction manual for life? I hear that all the time. I hear, you know, you get a new car, you read the instruction manual so you know how to use the car. Bible's the instruction manual for life. You should read the Bible so you know how to live. Is that really what the purpose of the Bible is? Or is the Bible first and foremost, and fundamentally, something else. And I would argue it is. The Bible is not intended by God to be an instruction manual for life. It is intended by God to be a love letter, letting you know how much he cares about you. 
read these words together with me, would you? This is how God showed his love to us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we could have life through him. This is what real, (coughs) not our love for God. It is God's love for us. He sent his son to die in our place to take away our sins. Folks, first and foremost, the Bible is the good news about a God that loves you, about a God that created you and how you fit into his creation, about a God that formed you to be the person that you are, about a God that loved you so much that when you strayed from his plan for your life, he sent his son Jesus into this world, about a Jesus that loves you so much that he willingly gave his life on the cross to pay the price for your sins and for mine. It's a story about that Jesus loving you unconditionally. We say it all the time. There is nothing you can ever do to make God love you one bit less. That's what the Bible teaches. First and foremost, the Bible is all about a God that loves you dearly. And it tells you what God has done to prove that to you. Now, yes, in response to that love, the Bible teaches us how to live. And because God loves us and wants what's best for us, he shows us the best things that we can do in our lives, things like Sabbath and thankfulness. But first and foremost, the Bible is God's love letter to you. Now, I remember the first time when I was reading through my Bible and I came to this verse in Exodus. It's talking about Moses, and it says, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And I remember reading that and being so jealous of Moses. I remember reading that and going, how cool would that be? To be able to actually sit down and have a conversation with God. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, how many times did that really happen in Moses' life? And and if you look and if you read through the Old Testament accounts, it might have been, I don't know, a couple dozen so, so maybe 20, 25 times during Moses' life, he got to sit and have a conversation with God, and that's amazing and cool. But I wonder if Moses wouldn't be jealous of us. Because, you see, we can open up the Bible every day. We don't have to wait for God to have time to sit down and have a conversation with us. It's, it's right there in the pages of Scripture. Any moment of any day, we could get out our Bible or our cell phone that's got our Bible app on it, And we can hear from God. God is waiting to speak to us through the pages of his word every single moment of our lives. I wonder if Moses wouldn't sit there and go, yeah, talking to God 25 times, that was pretty cool. But you get to read his Bible every day. I didn't have that. Think of the gift we have. We have this amazing gift of God's word. And I don't know about you, but I don't use it nearly enough. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of the Bible. Through 40 authors over 1,600 years, you spoke your word to us. And now we've got it right there. The pages of your word speak loudly and clearly of your love for us. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have failed to, to listen to your word, to read your word, to, to make, take advantage of the fact that you've given your word to us. And Lord, first and foremost, let your word be that love letter, that voice that lets us know how much we are loved. And then in response to that love, let your word be that guide to our paths that we might live our lives for you. 
In your name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, respond to God's word by standing and singing.